Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN, and this is a Cloud 2030 podcast one-on-one session with Julian Bennett, the author of Securing DevOps. Uh, and we had a robust and interesting conversation about all sorts of security topics. Um, really great. Let me give you a, a snippet of one of the gems in our post-conversation that he, he dropped that didn't make it into the podcast. I have it's... a friend of mine who spent almost a year uh, designing the perfect SE Linux profile for <laughs> an application. Yeah. It, it, it was great. Nobody could do anything to those boxes. They couldn't even update them. Within, within six months, it was disabled everywhere. Yeah. It's got to integrate. It's got to be part of the culture. It's got to integrate properly with the products. Uh, otherwise, people don't, don't care about security. <laughs> wow, that was you know, what you expect, and yet the why and the how are so important. So without further ado, uh, let's hear it from Julian himself. Thanks. So Julian, welcome to the Cloud 2030 podcast. Uh, we are super happy to have you here. Can you give us an introduction and, and tell us a little bit about uh, Securing DevOps, the, the book that you have out? Sure, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm a security engineer. Uh, I currently work at Google. I worked at Mozilla previously, and I worked in various uh, web-focused organizations uh, all over the place. Uh, my background is in systems and network engineering, and uh, I have a degree in information security. And uh, about a decade ago, I took a strong interest in cloud uh, when AWS was still very, uh, very young and people were starting to consider migrating to it. Um, and, and I was asked back then to try to attempt to migrate an Oracle database to AWS on EC2 instances with the Red Zero uh, EBS volume, which was terrible. Um, and over time, I grew kind of my understanding of cloud and, and my understanding of how to secure cloud environments. And I wrote Securing DevOps to help uh, engineering teams, both uh, SIEs and, and developers and security folks, kind of adopt best practices when they are adopting DevOps uh, and adopting cloud infrastructure and everything kind of changes from underneath them. Do you, so when you look at a DevOps practice from that perspective, is, is this something that you see as being added into a, a cloud practice? You know, wh what's, your, what's your strategy for you know, looking at a security posture as, as a whole when somebody's you know, designing an application or designing an application deployment? Right, right. I think the, the, the key element, the one that we keep going back to after a few years of, of, of using uh, DevOps practices is, is really the culture of the organization. Uh, how close various teams work with each other. So whether it's SREs, developers, product folks, security folks, etc. cetera. Um, how, how really strong that relationship is uh, and uh, how well they communicate on uh, what each group wants to really focus on and, and move forward toward achieving those goals. So an example of that would be uh, having security folks embedded with those product teams and those developers and SREs uh, from the get-go, from the design phases, and, and, uh, and bring in that security element to what those teams are going to build, uh, but also acquire that understanding of how they're going to build it, what's the business context around it, what are the constraints, what are the timelines, et cetera. Uh, and the closer the integration is, the better the, the DevSecOps mechanic 
kind of end up working. So a lot of folks tend to focus on like the automation piece and CI/CD integration, et cetera, yeah. which is important, right? You need agility, you need to be able to release quickly and run your test, et cetera. But in fact, the core component of a successful strategy is how good are you at working together? I, and that's, that to me is, is sort of this often described and seldom achieved um, paradigm from what DevOps should be, right? It really is about a collaborative uh, effect. Yes. Is, is there something that people would know that they're, they're doing it right? Not everybody can have a security team or a security engineer as part of this, this effort. What do, you, what do you do, assuming you're not there, to say, all right, I'm building you know, an application. How do you put security into that, into that process, even without a dedicated individual for it? Well, I think it's, in fact, very easy to start doing security without having security folks embedded because the, the, the really the first layer of security is asking basic questions like, how would someone break into this application? How would someone break into this service? And you don't need to be a security engineer with 30 years of experience to ask those questions. In right. fact, when we, when we run threat models and risk assessments, we, 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 uh, we have a framework called the Rapid Risk Assessment we built uh, at Mozilla that we're using in, in various places. Um, most of it is really about asking developers, how would you, as the designer of this application, break it? And they have the answers, right? And they're not security professionals, quote unquote. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. And, and that in that case, they actually know the app and they know what they're doing. I guess when I think of, the, of a securing DevOps model, I often think of everything that's going to come after that, right? Of, of hardening the the machine environment, hardening the networks, building all of, you know, securing your keys, making sure that your automation is robust. Right. Um, and, and is that a different mindset? Because that's a, a lot of teams, that's a different skill set, right? The developers are busy writing the code. They're thinking, oh, you know, if I protected myself from a drop tables attack or something like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're not, they're not thinking that, hey, I left this back door open and, and assuming that the ops team would secure their, you know, they're a lot, they're um, Prometheus ports and they forgot to, right. or, you know, how, how does, how does that end up being protected? Well, it depends on the size of the organization and the complexity of what you're building really. Um, mm. it, if, uh, when I, when I advise like super small organizations, like really like two devs, one SRA maybe, yeah. uh, the first thing I tell them is don't build anything yourself, right? Go use cloud environments, uh, you know, platform as a service, if you can, you know, uh, everything hosted by a provider that has secured everything for you, right? So you don't have to worry about the strengths of your cypher suites or the, the, mm. really the security around your database. And that's, that's really what cloud has provided is, is an infrastructure that's managed by someone else, but security is also managed by someone else. The same applies to, to building applications and services. You, if you're going to uh, build a, for example, a web portal for a customer who wants to sell stuff online, you're not going to start writing that in C and re-implementing every single <laughs> library by yourself, right? right. You're going to go to a well-known trusted framework. You're going to pick something like Django or Node or something like that, and you're going to use secure libraries that already have primitives that are secure, right? So you don't have to do it yourself. Uh, and in fact, th- there's a lot that teams can do before they need their first security engineer, just adopting clean, safe default practices, not trying to reinvent the wheel, will get yeah. you to a pretty secure space. 
I, I guess when I when I think about the times when I've done work like that, you know, I've, like I did a ton of Lambda work mm-hmm. and, you know, and we used like Cognito, turned it into Lambda. We relied on Cognito to secure the interface and things like that. But at the same time, that's a complex beast, right? What you describe as using these, these, these platforms, which I agree with you, right? And, you know, the cloud provider, you know, anyone you're using, has a security team auditing this stuff, but they're they're pretty complex platforms, and it would be easy enough to have, you know, leave something open without even realizing that it's open. Is is there a trade-off with that, or is that a concern? Well, I think what you're describing is is what has been sold to us with serverless is hidden right. complexity, right? I mean, I've, I've gotten bitten by Lambda more times than I can count. I've rewritten <laughs> applications that I thought would just work in Lambda only to run into edge cases that just made it impossible to deploy. Like you can build was, a standard yeah. application in Heroku, right? And ship it in Heroku in, in two hours. It doesn't have yeah. any of the complexity of Lambda. Right? Lambda is a trap. <laughs> it's just like, I love Lambda, but it's, <laughs> it's not easy. I, it's interesting. In some of the other cloud twenty thirty conversations, we we spend a lot. We get we get it. It draws us in like a like a giant gravity well. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm, I do I do agree with you. There's an element of of the you know the complexity dog catcher in it. Um, yep. So and and along those lines, does complexity then translate into you know security flags in your mind? Or should people be like, all right, this is becoming really complex. That's a security threat and should they pull back from things like that always always security like complexity always brings security concerns uh, the okay. simpler a system the more secure it can be doesn't mean doesn't mean it will be right but it's a lot easier for someone without a security background without you know days and days to spend on a project to find flaws in, in a simple system um, and complex systems always end up having security issues. And even worse mm-hmm. than that, complex systems, people are going to make assumptions about how it works. And most of the times, those assumptions are going to be wrong. Is there something that you use as a rule of thumb? That, like if you walk into a situation that, you know, where, where it's like, ooh, y- y'all, y'all, this is a ball of yarn. Do you, you know, at some point, this, and, and, and it's a complexity it has a reason. Do you have like a rule of thumb or something that you use to sort of untangle that knot so people can think about what what system, you know, what what house of cards that they've built, how tall they can get? Yeah, um, that's actually a really interesting question because I just, uh, I, you know, a few months ago, I joined Google and, and Google is about just as big as you can imagine it's going to be. <laughs> so, so actually, <laughs> yeah, a lot of it's very like, complexity. Yeah, there's a lot of and, and a lot of it is reasonable complex but there's a reason those things are complex right yeah. um, and generally what i what i do is that i will talk to two or three people about one thing and if they disagree <laughs> that usually good. means okay. that uh the system is complex enough or antiquated enough uh that it probably has flaws or security issues in it that's an intro. I like I like that rule of thumb. It makes me think about the times when I've been explaining something to somebody, and and it's like, and they go to try to implement, and you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you about this other thing that's mm-hmm. completely um, yeah. unrelated. Okay, that's a really that's a good rule of thumb. the The other one that I tend to think of, and you mentioned earlier, is as people do more 
cloud development, they have a tendency to invest more in having SaaS solutions as part of their, their problem space. Like I'm thinking about all the log and observability tools where you're building an application and you're shipping logs out to a, the SaaS provider. Um, logs famously have, you know, can be leaky from a security context. Yeah. Um, how much of a threat operationally is that? Should people be worried about you know, how they, what, what they ship and how they store it and manage that, that information? I think a lot of organizations end up treating their logs with the same degree of confidentiality as their databases. Because, uh, because they, like you said, they are leaky, right? You, you never really know. Like if you're going to dump stack traces, there's going to be at some point a request that contains a token that contains, you know, a statement that you don't want to leak or something like that, right? Yeah. Uh, same thing with logs. It's, uh, we, we, I've worked on log sanitization projects. Uh, they work if they work for very specific log types. Right. So if you have like one log line and it's uh, it's well defined and we need to sanitize it to send it out to a business intelligence system or something like this, then it works. But globally across the infrastructure, it just doesn't work. Right. Because the logs are too noisy and too verbose. It seems it's one of those dilemmas to me. It, It seems like always a problem. And when you create log entries, you should you should be aware that, you know, assume that that your log output is going to get posted on the internet somewhere but yeah it's actually it's one of the questions we ask in um, in in risk assessments is uh, and it's always a super interesting question to ask developers like what happens when your database your log uh, your source code potentially uh, leaks on the internet because right. it's not something that they would necessarily consider while building the application but it you can see the wheels turning in their heads right oh what I guess, oh, well, I guess we have that piece of information about our users that's super sensitive, right? And then it, it brings an interesting question, like, do we need that piece of information? Could we design the application to work differently? Can it be hatched? Um, these sort of things, right? right. Um, you don't always need to have, and, and that's a tendency we've, we've noticed over the years, um, a lot of projects are designed to capture a lot more data than they really need, right? And reducing that being less data hungry um, often, you know, simplifies the, the security uh, requirements around an application, reduces the risk, and makes everybody happier. That makes sense. That's, that really would be something important to manage up front. Yeah. The, you know, what about the times with, and I'm thinking about like system configuration and secrets injection, because uh, when you're building, because uh, we see this a ton, right? It's, you know, when you run applications, they have to connect to things. They need credentials. Those credentials are sensitive. So there is, you know, and secrets injection is, is a thorny, thorny topic. Mm-hmm. Are there things that you see that are working really well for people managing secrets or that they should keep in mind? Yeah. Uh, half a decade ago, I, I built a, a tool called SOPS uh, okay. that encrypts YAML files, the configuration files, using AWS KMS, GCP KMS, um, hmm. Azure Keystore, et cetera. It's like a, 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 an editor for encrypted configuration files. And uh, we use it a lot at Mozilla. It gained quite a bit of traction outside Mozilla. People added a bunch of connectors for a bunch of different config uh, formats, et cetera. And it's used quite a bit. It's people who use Kubernetes as well. 
um, I have grown to appreciate how flawed that entire process is. <laughs> all right, you need to expand on that, yeah. <laughs> because of all the edge cases you run into. The simplest way to manage configuration secrets, um, well, okay, the pipe dream is to not have configuration secrets, right? If you can automate your, your mm. uh, deployment to the point where when you create the database, automatically a, you know, a password for a user is going to be created and stored in the config and it's never stored outside of the pipeline itself, right? It just goes right. into, into secret, for example, it stays there and nobody else has access to it, then it's, it's wonderful, right? But the reality is that this model doesn't work for everything. So you need to store your secrets somewhere and inject them somewhere. Um, I like systems like, like all of the uh, AWS and GCP, like stored secrets manager type stuff are great. Uh, HashiCorp Vault is great. Like as long as you don't necessarily try to manage those files in a clever way by yourself, you'll be fine. So when I see people trying to yeah. do things like, you know, local PGP encrypted files in a in a public Git repo because they trust the PGP encryption, but guess what? You need to re-encrypt all your files every time someone joins the team or leaves the team and somebody who left the team two years ago still has access to all the files, et cetera. Like, this is terrible. Don't do that. Mm, <laughs> Using the yeah. hosted solutions, I think, is, is much, much, much better. It's interesting. It's it's a tricky challenge because you know your application does need to open the vault. It does need to pull secrets out of out of systems. Um, yeah, and what happens when that leaks? Do you is that do you, you rotate? You you know you rotate. They were saying it's a giant pain in the ass. <laughs> do you, I mean so so this we we talked about this a couple of years ago. We did some key rotations out of Kubernetes for TLS. Mm -hmm. That was going to be my next series of questions because I don't think people understand TLS very well. But do you rehearse key rotations? What's your what's your thinking for uh, key rotation in general? Or actually, I would guess I guess authentic authentication rotation. Yeah. Right. Because that that's to me a missing when we're talking about automating you know securing DevOps. I love I love the idea um, of creating creating secure credentials using them very narrowly, right? So that, you know, that transaction, that machine has a credential set. It's, it's automated, it's cheap to do it. But then a lot of times people don't think about, all right, how do I change that? How do I, right. you know, what, what happens when I run the automation and, and update the password or there's a time, you know, time's out because I, I, you know, if you're doing TLS right, you put time, time limited uh, certificates, yeah. right? And, and I think, so for, to, to that point, like people don't necessarily think about it. This is why I'm a huge proponent of checklists. So like every time we start mm. a new project, we just have a checklist with all the things that you should consider, right? And one of them being, you're building a, an application, a service infrastructure that we manage secrets, consider that you have to rotate them at some point, right? Uh, but it's not the only aspect that people have to think about. So checklists are great for that because it's impossible to just remember everything. Um, Specifically on, on rotation, um, yeah, I mean, it, it happens. I mean, we've had hard bleeds years ago that yeah. just leaked everybody's password. I remember at the time we had, we had our LDAP infrastructure exposed and like people's LDAP passwords were leaking on the internet. Oh. <laughs> it was like, we had the worst possible cases. So I've done many, 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 many rotations over the years and there's always a small set of passwords you cannot change. 
It's just hmm. like too hard coded, too far. Uh, I remember back in the browser ID days, which your listeners probably don't know about, but it was an old authentication protocol built at Mozilla in 2011, 2012. Okay. We couldn't rotate necessarily those signing keys at all um, without a massive amount of pain, right? Um, right. But it will happen. There will be a time when you have to change your secrets. So it, it goes back to agility, right? Thinking in terms of being able to tear down the entire infrastructure, being able to rebuild it with an, an entirely new configuration, entirely new variables, and, and the service continuing to function is, is a super important part of, of DevOps. And, and it ties into reliability, which is a super important part of security, right? Um, so how you do that? There's a lot of, you know, provisioning magic <laughs> and a lot of sweat. <laughs> it's interesting because one of the things that we were doing TLS, so um, I'll give a little bit of background. So I'm not speaking just um, out of the air, although I'm assuming you, you know my, you, you'll, you'll know where I'm going. Um, one of the things that make, makes Kubernetes really hard, and if you look at uh, Kelsey Hightower's original Kubernetes the hard way, 80% of the complexity was generating certificates. Right. Um, and so, you know, when, when we started automating that process and automating certificate generation, one of the things that was missed was this idea that you could have two certificates at the same time. Mm -hmm. And, and because of that, there was no, if you rotated your certificates, all the nodes would go offline until the, the certificates were updated in the configuration files and the systems were restarted because they had no idea that you could, you know, they hadn't allowed for the idea that you would have two credential chains simultaneously. Right. Um, and do you see that, that as a, and, that, and the same thing is true. Like if you're adding a password and you have, you know, a hundred nodes that are all depending on database access using the same credentials and the same password, if you rotate that password without having some, some you've got a hundred, a hundred machines that are now broken, no matter which way you do it. Uh, do you, how do you see people coping with, with issues like that? Because those are impossible to work around if they're there. Well, there are ways to work around it that are, again, going to be, to require some more engineering into, uh, to, that need to go into the, the, the deployment pipeline, essentially. Mm. Um, Blue-green deployments are great. I'm a huge fan of blue-green deployments. Uh, effectively always have, I mean, always have. When you're deploying a new stack, keep the old stack around, have two stacks in parallel. Uh, and, and maybe it's like shift just a small percentage of the traffic to the new stack to qualify it and then promote it entirely. Um, and if you push the automation to the extreme, then if you need to rotate the database password, then you can create a new password into your green deployment. And once it's fully deployed, get rid of the old password in the blue deployment. Right. Right. Um, so you can essentially move forward like this uh, by iterating on the stack without ever, um, you know, touching the existing production stack. It needs to be fully immutable in the configuration as well. Easy to say, pretty darn hard <laughs> to achieve. Right. I mean, most most DevOps team today still do database migrations by hand. Right. I mean, it's still something that's so finicky. Uh, and there are so many risks attached to it from rebuilding indexes to saying like that, that they still run those migrate commands by hand. Right. Um, it, for the case of certificates, um, one thing that has uh, significant, like drastically changed uh, since like 2013, 2015 um, is that we can 
today we can completely uh, forego the management of certificates entirely. We can automate it completely, right? Let's Encrypt is a perfect example of that. It's not the only certificate authority that, that supports Acme, but it's the main one. Um, mm -hmm. You can have your Kubernetes cluster generate Let's Encrypt certificates on the fly. If you don't want to terminate SSL uh, on the cluster, you can, and you, you're hosted in the cloud, you can use a global load balancer that effectively will issue and manage a certificate at the load balancer level as well. Right. Um, and also, you don't need to store those certificates anymore, right? You can reissue um, certificates uh, pretty much all the time, and you don't need to keep that private key in a configuration storage. Just issue a new one when you need it. Right, and that's and something that's so cheap. Fact. Yeah, that's amazing. exactly, exactly. And and in the past, you would issue a certificate for maybe two years. It would cost you a few hundred dollars, and you had to hold on to that private key, uh, and and never ever lose it. Uh, I've seen certificates valid for five years. Uh, yeah, it's it's terrible. <laughs> well, the, this is this is what what we started doing, and 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 it was amazing. Where we, you know, it's so cheap to generate a certificate set that you could actually build a private, you don't even need Let's Encrypt, you can build a private key pair and then use that for all your internal interfaces. And the nice right. thing about that is nobody can access it except you right. from that perspective. But it, that's still that's still pretty complex stuff. I mean, Let's Encrypt is awesome. Um, and in the cloud, since all the machines are named, it's not hard to do that. Um, private, some of the stuff we do with private cloud pieces. You know, that's, uh, that's it's interesting. It's easy to get a name, yeah. The, the private cloud, so again, like if you're if you're talking like public-facing certificates, uh, there are ways to automate. You know, it's encrypted. Mm -hmm. One of them for internal certificates. Um, this is a topic that I still struggle with a little bit. I, I, this is controversial, but I I see little value in uh, doing like internal endpoint to endpoint TLS encryption. Okay. Uh, it's, it's things like MTLS, etc. Uh, there are caveats to that statement, but if you're, if for example, you're in a, in a single availability zone, in a single region, in a single availability zone, and you have two machines talking to each other, chances are that that infrastructure, the network between these two machines um, is so well secured by the provider that effectively uh, anyone who can break into that network can also get access to your keys between these two machines. So TLS doesn't really add hmm. security, right? Because you're already in a very well-secured environment. Caveat to that is if you try, if you start crossing uh, regions or boundaries or untrusted networks, et cetera, then yes, yeah. it does provide value. But what I what I urge people to do is before you adopt something like you know MTLS and managing your own PKI is always hard it's easy at first but <laughs> two three four five years down the road after three turnovers of sra engineers nobody remembers how to run those scripts they break the certificates are terrible it's hard right really think about the security value you're getting out of that infrastructure right before you yeah. it. that's what i tell people that's an interesting, it's an interesting balance. I, I, I would not agree with that advice in general. Um, <laughs> but I think there's two layers on this. And, and this is getting to, the, to getting to the topic. If you're actually going to build a, your own private key network, then it's, it's great. It, you could just build private keys and accept that they're unsigned and um, get secure traffic without, without having to 
trust that key and you'll still get a benefit of encrypted traffic um, by default. So that, I think there's layers. And th this was where we came to with, with, our, with our thing. We're like, look, we could build a private key network and trust, you know, and trust that key and distribute the, distribute the, the, the chain. But at the end of the day, you know, it's sort of like, yeah, as long as it's encrypted traffic, it, that's a, a step forward. If you want to, if you want to manage the TLS, then, you know, manage the TLS. Um, yeah. Let's, I mean, encrypt, you, let's encrypt revolutionized the ability to, to do that. It's a, right. I, I, it's, it's always a question of threat model and what your environment is, what you're protecting against, how much security you want to put in. Like, it, it's very, very hard to have a generic answer to what the right set of security controls are, uh, yeah. are right for a given environment. Um, we managed to standardize some of that stuff. Like, for example, if you're putting a website on the internet today, just put HTTPS on it. Don't ask questions, <laughs> right? Stop trying to say, oh, but I just need HTTP. No, I mean, just put HTTPS on it. Stop asking those questions. Put yeah. TNS 1.3 so you don't have to battle the cipher suite. You know, it's, it's standardized and they're good. Um, and, and in the past, like CDNs would charge differently depending on whether the traffic was HTTP or HTTPS. But nowadays, yeah. it's the same price for both. So there's yeah. really no economical value to keeping HTTP around. So we managed to standardize some stuff. Um, but then when we really get into the weeds of a particular environment hosted in a particular place and, and how much security is needed, then that's where it's good to um, really find the right balance and thinking long-term, I think, also. Like how, is, how will someone manage this two or three years down the road as well? Makes sense. And, and you know, since I'm, I'm, I'm watching the clock, but I, I do want to think about container security. Um, mm -hmm. It's always, you know, we're, everything is containerized now, more or less. Um, is there any, is Great. there anything that, you know, that, and, and from a, from a DevOps perspective, right. I feel like we're putting things in containers and not really thinking about, you know, what it actually means from the host side, you know, secret. Right. I and mean, we talked about secrets, but secrets leak in containers. If you're not, if you pass things in command lines and you're not aware of it, containers are, are, can be pretty, pretty vulnerable. Um, What's what's your thought process there? Yeah, I, so there are different layers to this. I, I like to, if I can afford it, I like to think of containers not as a security boundary, but as a packaging mechanism, right? So if for, for sensitive applications, mm. for example, I wouldn't necessarily materialize, uh, you know, hosts. I would, I would have a container on a host uh, that is its own security boundary, right? So really using the container as a way to deploy the application. Um, for low-risk applications, then I, I think we, there are a lot of best practices today on, on running reasonably isolated containers. And the cost of breaking out of those containers is high enough that, you know, if it's a low-risk application, it's a high cost of breaking out, the math makes sense, right? Right. Um, now, the, the, the big challenge that we still haven't solved um, that relates to how we package those containers is, is the supply chain security. Um, and really what's important to do is to look at what we are going to put inside of this container, which libraries, where does it come from? Where does the right. container base come from? I've seen uh, folks try to build a critical application on third-party containers that come from some dude on a <laughs> GitHub repo, right? Like I have no idea what's running in that box. Like, and and it's, it's all ties back to supply chain security. Trust the software that you're putting in. Now, of course, we live in a, 
you know, in, on the internet, if, if you're a Node.js developer and you try to install a simple web app, you're going to pull a thousand packages. Uh, most of them are completely interested, right? Um, it, it's difficult to, uh, to really get good visibility into what's running into an application and a container. But I, I think there is room for, you know, being a little more frugal about what we put into these containers, what we put into this application, because that's where, that's how people get hacked. That's because yeah. those libraries turn malicious. <laughs> I, it's, it, yeah, people have a lot of faith in things that they just pull from that perspective. Do you, do, would you suggest that people should be looking at doing a, their own registries from a container perspective and taking that on? The registry, perhaps not, because if you have a good hash for your container, you can always, you know, verify that hash down the road and it, it wouldn't necessarily change. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's more a question of, a, we say that with, particularly with junior engineers, like they will adopt the latest framework, not thinking about how that framework is built and you install it and you have a million dependencies coming in from sometimes putting directly from GitHub repositories that are completely unsigned, right? Yeah. So once you have your container packaged, you package it yourself, you put it even in a public registry, but you have a hash of that container, it's not gonna change. Um, but before, before you build that container, you need to think about what you're putting inside of it. And that's really where the risks are. That makes sense. That's, a lot, that's the DevSecOps um, yeah. shift left story, which, which people should be, I expect listeners in this podcast to, under, to understand what, what, what we mean with that. And, and it is, I, I agree with you. It's the supply chain, you know, thanks to SolarWinds, the supply chain hack is becoming Absolutely. something people are very aware of. So, and yeah, containers have made us super nonchalant about, about packaging. It is, it's an awesome, you know, thing to get us past the packaging hurdles. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, that just means we're even less aware of all the, of all the things that have gotten downloaded onto, into the system. Uh, it's it's such a great evolution. I remember writing those RPM build scripts, trying to package <laughs> application into RPMs, and oh man, that was bad. <laughs> it was really bad. It's such a nightmare. It's funny because I was literally this morning. I was I was trying to install Podman onto a Amazon EC2 Linux a Linux two instance, and they're relying on the CentOS upstreams for that. Yeah, and you know, sad panda day that didn't you know, something's up with the mirrors. And so I, it all of a sudden, and I, my, my suspicion is, you know, Red Hat said, hey, we're tired of supplying the upstream repos for this. And unfortunately, Podman is, I, I, I can't, you know, I need, I need the container <laughs> runtime before anything else works. Um, but yeah, it's, these are, these are really hard, hard problems to solve from that perspective. Um, and it's to me that this is the place, things like this are where security goes wrong. Cause you get somebody who's like, all right, just going to flip a bit, fix it in the automation. Um, take a shortcut. And take a shortcut, and then it's hard coded into the automation, and you're 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 done, right? Absolutely. No point. Yep. Any so I mean, you, we're 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 talking. You know, I think we've covered a lot of ground, which I love. I'm sure there are chapters or things in the book that that we didn't. Is there something that you know people they go buy the book simply? But is there something in a chapter or something that you think that we didn't do any justice to, and you know, you always want people to read. Well, I th there's always a chapter that I like to uh, recommend to people. It's a chapter on uh, the case study on incident response, the Caribbean breach, because a lot of folks get into DevSecOps and think about automation, security, etc., but don't necessarily think about 
what happens when you're going to get hacked? Because at some point, you're going to get hacked. Right? You're going to get targeted by something. Secret's going to leak. Someone's going to get it's a when. It. Yeah, not if. It's a when. Exactly. And and in that chapter, I, I try to, you know, write a little like story on what happens when a small organization gets hacked and they have to respond and they have to rebuild their infrastructure and they have to do a postmortem and they have to work together under stress, etc. And I, and I think it's important that uh, folks can consider the implications of having to deal with an incident before. They get breached. <laughs> That's one I would recommend. Uh, it's a good. It's good advice. Would you actually go so far as to have teams do a simulation, uh, some type of? You can. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's always good. It can be fun um, if you if you're not comfortable running it yourself. There are uh, companies on the internet and firms that will organize it for you. But okay. uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I would think that even a dry run, if people know it's a dry run, would be. Um, illustrative because it'll be stressful yep. any security incident is, is going to be stressful and it can bring out the wrong behaviors in people so yep i don't uh, think it through in advance over a decade ago i did a dry run of a, of a business continuity plan with top executives at a bank in france and within it was a dry run within 30 minutes they were yelling at each other <laughs> if that is no, always always interesting <laughs> it's you know it's not hard to imagine the risks and you know you start going through that process and yep if you haven't thought it through ahead of time <laughs> you do not want to invent that on the fly good advice Absolutely. very good advice julian thank you this is i love talking security and i feel like you've really brought this into a level that we can understand uh practical tips you know hands-on things that we can look at um, how do we get in touch with you? And please give us the title of the book again and, and let us know where to find it. Sure. Well, the book is called Securing DevOps. Uh, you can find it at securing-devops.com. It will redirect you right away to the mining site. And I'm, I'm all over the internet. You can find me on Twitter, uh, J-V-E-N-T, J-V-E-H-E-N-T. And uh, yeah, that's probably the best place to get in touch with me. And thanks a lot for having me on the show. This was great. Uh, Julian, I appreciate the time. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. This is our one-on-one -on -one series where we talk to people one-on-one -on -one and go deep, deep, deep into their uh, special expertise. If this is interesting to you and you want to talk about a specific topic or respond to what we're talking about in general with the Cloud 2030 crew, uh, give me a shout. I love these one-on-one -on -one conversations because I learn a lot and um, hopefully you do too. If you like what you hear, shout out to us. Uh, please let us know, let other people know. Um, we, we're, I'm really excited about the content, uh, and I hope you are too. Thanks.